I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tenhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Time to die. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. What we've got here is failure to communicate. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. Whatever appears emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. Hello and welcome to Sorted Cinema, flagship film podcast over at SortedCinema.com. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined once again by Mr. Ricky D. What's up, Simon? How are you doing? Oh, not too bad. Thanks uh, for coming back after a brief absence. And uh, we are also joined by Patrick Murphy. Yeah, I was gone too. How'd the last show go? I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. Ooh, you should be listening to all the shows <laughs> repeatedly and telling your friends. Um, <laughs> it was good. We uh, we had uh, Chelsea Phillips Carr and former host Edgar Shapiro on to talk about TIFF. It was good. Everyone should listen to it. We are also joined by uh, a sort of cinema contributor, Shane Ramirez. Hey, how's everybody doing? Do you uh, do you write for anywhere else, Shane? Where I I I, I didn't rehearse this intro. <laughs> Uh, not currently, mostly just you guys. Um, well, that makes sense because we the best and all that. So yeah, we're here to talk about the running of the blades twice. Um, we are going to open things up with a discussion of the original Blade Runner, of course, directed by Ridley Scott. And uh, then we're going to move on to, uh, the movie that absolutely tore up the box office this weekend. Uh, that's Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> if you can't detect the sarcasm in my voice, perhaps I need a recalibration. So is there anything... I mean, obviously our TIFF coverage is over. I think we ended up with like 30 plus reviews. Whole uh, whole crew killed it, so congrats on that. I mean, what, what's I know that After Dark is also looming on the horizon. Uh, anything else we should mention, Ricky, for stuff uh, happening over at Sorted? Emmett covered Fantastic Fest alone. And he delivered 15 reviews. So, fuck. Just saying. <laughs> Such an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it. Um, yeah. You can, uh, if you like our podcast, you can uh, listen to it on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, over on our website, and of course, iTunes. Uh, give us a rating if you like the show. It, it helps, uh, especially because we had to restart our feed. So, we lost all previous like 65 plus reviews. And it helps us find a bigger audience. That's right. Um, so, yeah. Screw it. No more preamble. Let's uh, take a trip back to 1982 with Ridley Scott and the original Blade Runner. Let's hear a clip. She's a replicant, isn't she? I'm impressed. 
How many questions does it usually take to spot one? I don't get it, Tyrell. How many questions? 20, 30, cross-referenced. It took more than 100 for Rachel, didn't it? She doesn't know. She's beginning to suspect, I think. Suspect? How can it not know what it is? Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. Rachel is an experiment, nothing more. We began to recognize in them strange obsession. After all, they are emotionally inexperienced with only a few years in which to store up the experiences which you and I take for granted. If we gift them the past, we create a cushion or pillow for their emotions and consequently we can control them better. Memories. You're talking about memories. That was a clip from the original 1982 Blade Runner. Uh, directed by Ridley Scott, based on Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? The adaptation was penned by Hampton Francher and David Peoples. And it's set in the, uh, in the, in the far distant dystopia of 2019 Los Angeles, uh, where just everything is miserable and nowhere is adequately lit. Um, many people are off in the off-world colonies, just away from this depressing hellhole that is 2019 Los Angeles. And meanwhile, Harrison Ford plays uh, Deckard, a uh, police officer whose express job, or I guess not quite exactly a police officer, that's still not totally clear to me, to be honest, um, whose express job is to hunt down replicants who are uh, humanoid robots genetically engineered to be perfect slaves, uh, but also possess superior strength and intelligence uh, at, at minimum equal intelligence is what the preamble tells us to humans um, why work slaves need to be as smart as people was never made clear to me but hey i'm not philip k dick anyway um so i mean ricky it's sort of incredible in our in our many many years of film podcasting that we've never reviewed or even really discussed blade runner don't you think yeah, I think I kind of always just assumed that they were going to make some sort of sequel. Um, but we never got around to it. Um, not really entirely sure why. It's it's honest to God like a movie I adore, I admire. But strangely, I haven't watched a movie in a very long time. I, I think it was at least 10 years since I last watched a movie. And the last time I watched a movie, actually, Simon, was I, uh, I watched a Laserdisc version. Because my, nice. Yeah, my older brother has a Laserdisc version. Um, so this what week, version was that? Okay, well, it's one of eight, Patrick, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, that's why I'm curious. <laughs> um, I honestly cannot remember what the differences are, but uh, I've since, in the past week, watched Blade Runner, the original film, three times. I watched the uh, director's cut, I watched the final cut, and I watched the theatrical cut. There really isn't much of a difference from the director's cut and the final cut. The big difference is that the final cut is just polished. It looks beautiful. And I'm assuming you guys watched the final cut, right? Yes. And they they, don't, they make a few extra edits towards the end with the unicorn sequence, right? Like, just to make it a little bit clear. I believe they cut directly to his face as opposed to... Well, that that's in the director's cut as well. So basically, the director's cut, uh, they got rid of the narration. So there's no narration, mm -hmm. which to be... On, to, 
be totally honest with you guys, I kind of like the narration. Like, I I mean, I'm not a big fan really? of voice. Yeah, I'm not a really? big fan of narration <laughs> in movies. But I think the reason why I like it so much is because the first version I watched was the theatrical version. And so I have sort of um, an attachment to it. It's, it's It has more to do with my childhood, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, I was just going to say it's wild how in the original theatrical edit, Deckard actually turns into a unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and it has somewhat more of a bleaker ending. So that that's basically like the big difference, and you 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 do get the dream sequence and the unicorn clearly. But the point is that the version of the final cut is really just a polished version. And what I, I admire about Ridley Scott is um, he didn't want to do what George Lucas did with Star Wars. He avoided any sort of like CGI work. Um, so when he went back to polish up the final cut, he just sort of like enhanced the visuals and restored the actual print and just cleaned it up and scrubbed the visuals and sound. So it's not like star Wars in in the sense that they went into an editing suite and added a bunch of like special effects digitally. They just like cleaned it up and it looks beautiful. And the thing about the original blade runner guys is, and I'm sure you guys will agree. Everyone will tell you that the movie is gorgeous, right? But it's insane because this movie was released in 1982 and it looks like it was made yesterday. Like in my opinion, this movie looks better than Blade Runner 2049. I think the look of this film is just insane. I mean, even if you even for 1982, like if you look at sci-fi movies that were released in 1981, 1980, 1979, it looks like there was a decade in between. Like this movie was ahead of its time in terms of at least in the way it looks. Like so I think Blade Runner changed the way the world looks at how we see science fiction at least on the big screen so i think it's like groundbreaking clearly uh if only for its visual look its atmosphere and the fact that it it created sort of like the cyberpunk vision on the big screen and i think like you know i kind of get frustrated when someone just tells me uh the movie sucks like everyone's entitled to an opinion and not everyone's going to like every single movie made but i think you need to back up your argument so i can understand that some people do not like the movie and that is fine but there's just so much to love about the movie and i think the visuals is one of those things like the movie's been widely copied since i mean every single sci-fi film we have we've had since 1982 i think owes a bit to blade runner i think i think they they sort of like term it trash chic right that whole vision of the future but i think this this is definitive sci noir like when it comes to science fiction and film noir mixed this is it this is like the the, the godfather and i love this movie uh now shane do you have the same sort of um like period emotional attachment to blade runner yes i will say mine is a little different because the first version i saw was the director's cut and uh i believe i saw it about 20 to 17 years ago uh very specific childhood story you know spending the night at my grandmother's my brother and i would stay up late and we caught the very beginning at like 1 a.m. of this movie. I think it was TNT, TBS, one of those. And the opening crawl comes up. And then you have that opening shot. And for two hours, we just sat there and watched this movie that we had known about because we had always seen the poster and the cover art at the video store. Um, And we were like, oh, this is Blade Runner. And I, I remember it was the director's cut because... I don't remember any narration and I remember that cut to black at the end. Um, and it was this very formative viewing experience. Um, 
I would say as a child, the visuals are what drew me in, but it wasn't until I grew up and, you know, years and years that I started appreciating the story um, and kind of uh, the layers to it, what it was offering from a character and a thematic standpoint. All right, Patrick. I just, what's your problem with Blade Runner? <laughs> it's got a terrible script. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even no. know that you had a problem with it. I don't. I, I don't have a problem with Blade Runner. No, I don't think it does. I it's it's an unconventional script, but I, I actually don't have a problem with Blade Runner whatsoever. I I love that movie. Um, but I it's not from. I definitely didn't. I didn't see it when I was uh, a kid. I saw it in college, and I just sort of sought it out by myself when I was you know watching as many movies as I could going to film school. And uh, I saw the theatrical cut first because that was all we had in our, our in our library there. And I, I hated the narration, Rick. I, you can tell Harrison Ford is phoning it in the entire time. He clearly hated the narration, which he has then gone on to say several times. Yeah, it's an, it's an unconventional script that I think a lot of people, they're looking for more plot. And we'll get to this when we discuss the new one about the importance of plot to Blade Runner. But it's not important. And that's not the main thing that's, that, that the movie is about. You know, this this little task that Deckard is given is really not the focus of the movie. It's definitely more about its themes. And the plot is just a vehicle so that you can get from one scene to the next where it can explore its themes in a little, you know, both visually and with dialogue. So I think a lot of people are bored by by the the way that the, the plot is structured, by the way the, the movie is written, because they're not used to it. They are used to more of, it, it seems like a detective movie. It seems like it should be a noir, but there really isn't any mystery going on here. The, the whole thing about with Deckard, you know, the is he, isn't he kind of thing, that's been blown way out of proportion and it has become the central focus of what Blade Runner was about, but that's not really what it's about. It, it isn't about any mystery at all. It's more what sci-fi, what I always imagined sci-fi to be, which is just an exploration of, you know, the greater truths of humanity, as douchebaggy as that might sound. That's the mystery, dude. That's the mystery. That's the mystery, though, but it's an existential mystery, and it's not one that's on paper, and it was never meant to be, even though your main character is dressed like he was, you know, a detective, a Humphrey Bogart detective. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've got all, all sorts of trappings of noir mysteries from the shadows and just the, even the voiceover in the original version suggests that, but there really isn't much going on with the plot. I said, I like the voiceover because it, it's like uh, nostalgic for me. Like it just reminds yeah. me of the first time I mm -hmm. seen it. But that's what I mean about the script being poorly written. It's because of stuff like the narration, which to be fair, the studio made them include yeah. the narration because they did not think that the audience at the time would understand what the movie is about, but nobody looks at, Nobody watches Fritz Lang's Metropolis and complains about the script or the plot because that's not that's not what that's not the type of movie it is. Like this is a very moody picture and much like the best film noir, it's thick on atmosphere. It's deliberately paced. I love the pacing. It's slow, yet it's still not as long as the new movie, thank God. But it takes it's <laughs> not it's, even close. Not dude. even close, dude. <laughs> it takes its time getting from one scene to the next scene. But at, at the same time, like what I find intriguing about this film, I mean, one of the many things is that this movie was released in 1982 after Star Wars during a time in which Hollywood sci-fi blockbuster films were heavy on effects and action, you know, like Atari sci-fi video game like action movies. Um, mm -hmm. And they Ridley Scott made Blade Runner. It's a very dark 
brooding, moody picture that's slow. It's a sci-fi film. Uh, it was released the same day as John Carpenter's The Thing. Imagine that. Two of the greatest films of all time released on the exact same day. I think the two best films in 1982. Neither one of those films made money at the box office. This was a box office flop. So it's not surprising that the new film is a box office flop. It's just honoring the original, man. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's well, if, if you... If you look at 2049, 2049 actually kind of rectifies the more noirish elements because it is more of a pure procedural than the original. Yeah, um, it is very much an investigation, a mystery, and uh, I mean, if you look at Denis Villeneuve, Villeneuve, is very much in love with the procedural. If you've seen Prisoners, if you even to an extent Sicario, um, that's kind of the the main element. I think he brings to this, which means it's way more plot oriented. Yeah, they flipped it kind of for the new one. And, you know, we will talk about that later, but they kind of the focus is completely flipped where plot becomes the the main part of the movie. And the any sort of exploration of any themes is definitely takes a back a backseat to all of that uh, the, oh, to the mystery. I completely disagree with that assessment, but we'll get there later. Um what I found fascinating about rewatching Blade Runner, which I had not done in many years, much like Ricky, um, that would a couple things I noticed. One is that people talk about the film as being atmospheric, but I would take that a step further and say that it has um, it, it's a very somnambulistic film. It feels like the whole movie feels like it's sleepwalking. You know, the the moment at which at which the Deckard characters seems to feel the most natural is when he takes like a mid movie siesta with Rachel. Like <laughs> there's something about, there's something about Harrison Ford's performance. And like, to be honest, I, I, I don't really think it's like a, like one of the iconic leading man performances in a genre film. Like he's, he's fine, but you know, you, you mentioned something about him phoning it in, in the narration. Um, interesting fact. So I, I don't really want to get caught up in is he a replicant and or not because it's not really important and I don't think it makes the movie better. In fact, I think it makes the movie worse even thinking about it. But on set, uh, Harrison Ford refused to act like a replicant because at, during the time they were flirting with the idea of him being a replicant, he refused. And so he wanted to act a specific way. The thing about Harrison, For Harrison Ford's performance here is it's not great. He's the least interesting character in the movie. And I don't think it's because that's what Ridley Scott wanted out of his performance. I just don't, I, I think at the time he just wasn't as good of an actor. Whereas a new movie, which we'll talk about shortly, he's fantastic in a, in a, in a new movie. So it, it's, it's, it's is, interesting yeah. how we get like the reverse effect here where in the original film, he's the least interesting character in the new film. He's the most interesting character. Have any of you I, seen I, dangerous days, the blade runner documentary? No. Well, I, yeah, I actually, so I, Rewatched Blade Runner at the Alamo Draft House in August, and then immediately after I watched the, I think three and a half hour documentary because that's what I spend my time doing. And uh, Harrison Ford hated the production. In fact, he was in his trailer when he wasn't shooting his scenes. Um, and to piggyback on your point, uh, the writer Hampton Fancher confirmed that. He believes Deckard is not a replicant. Right. Well, in the, in the book, in the novel, and keep in mind, it's loosely based on a novel. He's not a replicant in the novel. But Ridley Scott 
had the idea of making him a replicant while making the movie. Harrison Ford refused. The writer didn't want to do it. And I'm basing this on an, on an interview I read, um, I think it was on Wired with Ridley Scott. And it was later, because a lot of fans were debating if he was or wasn't, that Ridley Scott decided to release the director's cut, right? But the point is, like, he, you know, Harrison Ford is a Blade Runner. He's a detective, a hard-boiled detective. And much like any film noir detective, he has this, like, negative worldview. But the thing about his performance is, he, regardless if he's a replicant and or a human... He's just not as interesting as Rudger Hauer, who I need to talk about soon, but I need to get Simon back on the mic because for me, <laughs> this whole entire movie revolves around Rudger Hauer's performance. I think he's the reason why this movie works for me personally. Yeah, I mean, Ridley Scott's insistence that Deckard is a replicant has really complicated, like it's sort of needlessly complicated the series. The The ultimate effect is that there's no real there's there's really effectively no difference between humans and replicants except that replicants are stronger and are generally paid played by more attractive actors um <laughs> that's that's about the that's about the weight of the difference which sort of flattens some of the philosophical considerations but i'm going to leave that aside for now are you um, calling leon listen? attractive <laughs> i said generally <laughs> do we um, do we listen to anything ridley scott says anymore i mean really uh, well, I mean, considering he hasn't made a good movie since this one, not really. Um, I mean, I mean, that's that's uh, a little yeah. harsh. I mean, tell them, right? <laughs> Speak for yourself. I kind of have a soft spot. I, I like. I didn't hate Alien Covenant. I'll no, it's that. a good movie, and so is Prometheus. I, okay. Oh my god. <laughs> Stick to Blade Runner, guys. Yes. Um, I mean, what I find most interesting about Blade Runner is that. I feel as though it's been able to have this mystique for so long just because because of like really only a few factors. I'm not saying it's not a, a good movie. I think it is. I mean, it's certainly a noteworthy one. But were it not for like a few things that are I, I mean, I, that I think, fr frankly, like almost a matter of luck. I, I, I don't think it's just a matter of luck. It's not just because I don't want to give Ridley, Ridley Scott credit, which I don't really, but I will. Um <laughs> It's, you know, first of all, were it not for a couple of iconic moments and performances, Rutger Hauer is absolutely chief among those. Ricky, you're right about that. Were it not for Vangelis's completely unbelievable score, um, which I have listened to on its own way more often than any other film score ever made. Um, and were it not for um, the, the, the visual design of 2019 Los Angeles, um, certainly the sequel wouldn't exist. We wouldn't be having this podcast today. It would, it just, it would be a curiosity maybe, but it wouldn't be the sort of real sleeper hit pop culture artifact or whatever it is. Um, because I don't think it has, you know, clearly the script is far from airtight. Um, I, I don't know. To me personally, Blade Runner is summed up in its title. Why are they called Blade Runners? <laughs> Nobody knows. You, know, no, you, know what, you, you want to know why they're well, called Blade Runners? Is because they're fucking cool sounding. It's they, they invent they invented it. There was another movie uh, script that was called Blade Runner that was kicking around at the time, exactly. and it wasn't yeah. it wasn't going anywhere. And Ridley Scott loved the name of it, and it was close enough to Bounty Hunter that he that he bought the rights to it. There well, you go. Yeah, it was originally going to be called Dangerous Days. That was hence the documentary title, but um. I think uh, I'd have to disagree with you because I think one of the main enduring things about Blade Runner is 
just the way it feels as a movie, the way it moves. I think it's, it's pacing and its atmosphere has been the most endurable aspect of it. And I think that was kind of the, the main holdover, even more than the visuals that Denis Villeneuve takes to 2049. And I think that's one of the reasons we're so surprised. That's, that's such a success is because it's still retained this tone and this mood and the, uh, the sensibility that, uh, you know, sometimes a story can be the way characters feel in an environment over, say, what they're actually doing. The, the cryptic nature of that goes a long ways as well. I mean, one of the reasons I think that, that uh, Blade Runner works is the same reason I think that Mother works really well. And that's because you can view it on so many different planes, so many different levels. The story is, while it's sparse plotting-wise, it is very layered as to how you can interpret it. And that goes a long ways towards getting people talking about a movie. That's how you get a cult classic. It does something well enough that it engages people in on multiple levels, and they can have discussions about it. And very few movies attempt to do that as well as Blade Runner did that. And also, you're right, it has a couple of key moments that just stick with people. The Tears in the Rain speech is something that, that sticks with people, and it happens to be right at the end of the movie, and they remember that speech. So they therefore, they remember the movie. Right. Well, you um, know, this is getting terrifying because when I was watching this movie for like the fifth time, third time this week, I could not help but think of Aronofsky's film, Patrick. And I was thinking of you and I was thinking of the Christian allegory in Blade Runner, which I never really picked up on in the sure, past. Sure, the fallen angel. Roy Batty is the fallen angel, man. For, for mm-hmm. sure. But even. Prodigal son. Yes, but even in terms of like the, the eye symbolism, which uh, I, I've well, known he's got about. The stigmata, too. Right, and a lot of people have written about this too. Um, but what I noticed watching it again was when you when, when people do argue about if he is a replicant and or not, um, there are specific scenes in which the replicants have this sort of, um, I guess, like a sparkle in their eye. I don't know if you guys have noticed that, like mm-hmm, the vampires yeah. in Twilight. They they have a little. Their eyes turn red when the light hits them. Right. Right, so there's a, there's a specific glow, and it was done purposely, right? And but there's one or two scenes in which Harrison Ford's character has that glow in his eye, but still, I mean, the movie itself opens up on an eye, right? It's a close up of an eye. The whole mm-hmm. entire film thematically links to this idea that the eye is like the window to the soul, and so there's like there's so many different things to pick up when watching this movie, so many different ways to read it. But I also like the idea of how it taps into memories and the idea that you can't really rely on your memories because people remember things wrong all the time. Like we can experience a tragedy and Patrick can have his own version of a story. I'll have my version of the story and Simon will have his version of the story. And we're not entirely sure what is real and what's not. But the, th- the thing that I think that makes this movie so great, and again, it comes back to Rudger Hauer's character and specifically the climax, which you alluded to, Patrick, is what makes us human if there's one thing that makes us human or animalistic or whatever, it's the need to survive or want to survive. Right. And, and so, and going back to even like the biblical references, you have uh Rutger Howard's character here and he realizes, he discovers that he only has four years to live. And so he wants to meet his maker and see if there's a way in order to like resolve this issue so, to see if he can fix him so he can live longer because he wants to live as long as humans right and of course he can it's kind of like depressing to some extent and 
you get that whole like sequence where in my opinion Rutger Howard just shines but then you get to the end of the movie and this is what I mean about it's his movie like it comes to life because of his performance he's a centerpiece and for me that's why the movie becomes about mortality it's because of his character and you have this like sequence in which he chases down Harrison Ford's character and he knows he doesn't have much time left and as he's chasing Harrison Ford's character, be it if he's a replicant and or not, Harrison Ford is trying his best to survive. Like, Rutger Howard's character is supposed to be a lot, more, a lot more powerful than Harrison Ford's character, although in the movie they don't really show why these replicants are so dangerous, which is kind of like a flaw, but I guess it's because it's a sign of the times. But still, he's like the bad guy. He's the menacing figure. At the end of the film, you end up understanding how he feels and you end up sympathizing for his character, despite the fact that he's a deadly replicant. And he himself is scared of dying. He does not want to die. So in that respect, he is sort of like more human than some of the human characters in this movie. And there's something poetic about his performance and the way his character is written, which a lot of people have criticized. But he is the creation of this man, that the, 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 the uh, Mr. Tyrell, who owns a Tyrell Corporation, right? And I think he's purposely designed to be theatrical. Like, he's supposed to be very melodramatic, and he's designed to be theatrical. And that's why when you get that voiceover, or not that voiceover, when you get that speech at the end of the film... That's why people remember it, because it's not just about the performance, but it sort of like just takes the overall theme of the film and everything about this character and summarizes it. And that one entire scene summarizes what the movie's in entirely about. And I just I cannot s stress how important his performance and role is to this movie, because without him, this movie would be half as good. I'd like to disagree with one point. So he... I do think a defining trait of Batty is that he doesn't want to die. But what kind of gives him the transcendence at the end is an act of compassion. And that's saving Empathy. saving Deckard from death. Not just, okay, I, I don't want to die. It's, oh, I can save this per person from dying. And I think, I, but, I think but, that ties in with 2049 pretty beautifully once we get into that. And the, the, the whole... Well, the whole movie, the, the Voight-Comp test, or however you pronounce that, those are all testing for empathy. That's what they're doing. That's the way they distinguished mm -hmm. humans from replicants, is empathy. And he shows empathy at the end, and that's the transcendent moment. This replicant, who they thought basically could not feel those things, that's how they told them apart, is feeling those things. And it's supposed to make you think about what what your humanity truly is, right? Um, so it's they're testing for empathy and you know whether or not you can show compassion towards others, and he does do that. That's a, that, that's a major moment. But the reason why he does it is because he's put in a position. This is where you have an action scene, and it's very rare that an action scene summarizes the whole entire film and these two characters. He realizes that he feels that compassion and human emotion because he witnesses. Harrison Ford's character in a similar position that he's in. He puts him in that position because he's chasing him. He's trying to like kill him. But then he realizes that's what Blade, what Blade Runner does to like, that's his occupation. That's what he does. So he realizes he is no different than him at that point in time. Right. But it's yeah. not so much his will to survive as his ability to show compassion for somebody else trying to survive because everything has a will to survive, right? Even down yeah, to even animals. organism. <laughs> no, I mean, like, like even something without a brain will still struggle to survive. Right. Like right. so, but that doesn't make it human. That, it, but this puts him closer to that, if not exactly. Um. So a couple 
key points I'd like to make really quickly. First of all, Ricky, when you say that without Rutger Hauer, the movie wouldn't really work, I would double down on that and just say that one of the movie's key weaknesses is that the non-Roy Batty replicants are mostly terrible. Um, like, I'm sorry, Daryl Hannah and other lady and Sean Young. Um, I realize that Sean, Sean Young's look in the movie is extremely iconic, um, but they, you know, clearly she was directed to be quite stiff and robotic and she delivered um the problem isn't her performance i think that's the way she was directed and that's yeah that's that's what what she was given like that's the problem with the screenplay um i kind of actually like performance but more so not it's it it has it has more to do with the, the way she's lit like i love the way they light her and the way she's dressed and the way she is i guess directed to act like she is robotic she is cold she is she is icy but what, what I find interesting is, again, going back to Harrison Ford, and I'm sorry, Harrison Ford, you're a cool guy and everything. <laughs> but when you have, like, the icy poised Rachel standing next to, like, Harrison Ford's Blade Runner character, she sometimes feels more human than his character. And I well, gotta say, the, the sex scene is the only scene in the movie that I, that I think does not stand the test of time. It's whoo, the biggest So flaw. glad someone brought that up. Oh, my God. <laughs> is, it, is it a rape scene? It is. I mean, let's let's be clear. It based on the based on the script, based on like what what how the characters are supposed to feel, it is not. But based on how Harrison Ford's character behaves and the way the scene is blocked and like the the physicality of it, it absolutely is. Let's let's be totally real about that. Well, the original the original sex scene was was longer that they shot and it actually had nudity and it was more it was more sensual, I guess. I think even more um consensual but during the filming i guess somehow they they come up with the idea of kind of manhandling her and uh, and oh, decker nice. forces well, it, himself on there it makes for an interesting i i mean it kind of keeps with the film's themes because all, the entire movie you're 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 seeing robotic or i don't know if they're they're not really even robots by the way i mean the way we're described described them they're not the same as like his android from alien or anything but um they're more they're more biological than that but you're seeing the animals. Everything's kind of a toy, right? You see uh, Sebastian as toys. He's made friends. And the way Harrison Ford treats her is like an object in that scene. Like, she's not a person. She's not She's not human. He's just enjoying a toy. That, well, you, you were going on that the replicants were the weakest. That we're all weak. Oh, I, well, I mean, I wasn't so much thinking about, uh, about Rachel. I was more thinking about Roy Batty's um, sort of cohorts. Yeah, Leon and, like, and Chris. Leon and Pris, yeah, and uh, and Zora, the other one, Zora. the snake lady. Zora, Zora, yes, thank you. They're just, I don't know. For, for characters who are supposed to be more human than human, it seems like they're basically circus clowns who <laughs> are, like, super strong. I don't know. I didn't really get, to be to be perfectly honest with you, the way the other, like, I, I the Roy Batty character makes sense. The others seem like sort of wacky um, they, I don't know. They almost seem like characters out of out of a different movie. Correct me if I'm wrong. They say there are six replicants, right? But we only get to see four in the movie. And if you consider Harrison Ford's Blade Runner, the fifth, who is the sixth? No, oh, there's there's five because there's Rachel, and then there's Roy Batty and the and the other three. Yeah. There's Zora, or whatever her name it, Snake Lady, Snake Chris, Lady Zora. Leon, and Roy. And Deckard and Rachel at six. Oh, you're right. Okay, you're right. Yeah. Math. As I, as I was sort of trying to hint at with like 
pointing out that the, that the name doesn't mean anything. It's one of those movies that like you're it's better it's better to luxuriate in than to look than to you know zoom in zoom in on too closely like with their visualization machine. You know, it's uh oh sorry, I had one other question to ask, specifically Shane, since you watched that documentary. Yeah. My favorite bullshit claim by anyone who worked on Blade Runner is the way Rucker Hauer has always insisted, at least in, in interviews that I've read, that he ad-libbed the <laughs> his Tears and Rain speech. That's got to be bullshit, right? Um, I think they actually do confirm that he did improvise it, or he kind of tweaked what they had. That's what it was. Really, really, Scott confirmed that as well, that he wrote yeah. the, the Tears and the Rain quote is all Rucker Hauer. Yeah, the uh, actual, but the most actual of the speech part. was there, though. Yeah, Rucker most of the speech Hauer was there. But... I love <laughs> yeah, I was going to say... Is that a yeah. William Blake quote? Hmm. I've uh, never heard it. I can't say. Remember. They do quote William Blake a few times in the movie, and they even misquote purposely William Blake. So I was just wondering if that came from some sort of, like, I don't know, somewhere, like a poet or a book, or if he just, like, made it up. Um, regardless, he rules. He rocks. I, I just, I just yeah, hope you... that the second the cut was over, he did, like, a little fist pump for himself. <laughs> you, you, know what's, um, you know what's crazy? The, when I, I didn't realize to watching it again, but Howard, Rugger Howard only has four scenes in the movie. That's wild. Yeah. The eye scene, uh, when he meets Sebastian, when he kills Tyrell, and then the chase at the end. Um, oh, I actually really like, I, I, I've said that the other supporting characters are bad, but I do kind of like William Sanderson as yeah. Stan yeah. Sebastian. Uh, only he, mostly because to be be honest i remember i think of him on deadwood 20 years later and it makes me smile <laughs> me too <laughs> well and also his uh his character kind of ties in with the the short lifespan of the replicants because he's what 25 and he looks 45 he's got the accelerated uh aging <laughs> disease progeria i think oh right yeah 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 and that and that gives them sort of a bridge to a little bit of empathy so Shane, we can't end our review without talking about the cinematography, and you are a cinematographer. So can you maybe talk a bit about Jordan Cronweath's? I can't pronounce Cron- his name. Cronweath. Can you maybe talk a bit about his cinematography? Yeah, well, um, definitely one of the most enduring aspects of Blade Runner is its cinematography, and I can't say if it's you know the originator of the blue smoky blue streaks of light flooding the windows that pervaded the 80s but um it's definitely what comes to mind when you think of you know the big dystopias the um atmospheric dystopias um they actually built these giant xenon rigs they don't use xenon lights anymore because they're so hot on set that was the first time they used it too yeah, and this gigantic, yeah, yeah, gigantic rig blasting light through the windows. Then they light the uh, the, the L.A. hotel, which is where they filmed the uh, the chase at the end. Um, that always kind of stuck with me. But um, yeah, I watching the final cut, and especially on the big screen, which really does enhance the visuals and really kind of. I, I think that's where the movie's meant to be watched. Um, but I couldn't help but look at it and think this might be one of the top 10 best shot films ever made. The way it works is with that much light is they flooded the set with so much smoke, which diffuses the light, which spreads it in different directions. Um, And actually watching the documentary, uh, the cast and crew recalls how smoky the set was. I think at one point they had some crew members with, uh, you know, 
face masks because it was so thick. Um, that's really kind of how you achieve that effect. It's not just a bunch of light through the windows, but it's really, it's, you know, like Janos Kosminski, Spielberg cinematographer, he does a lot of the same thing. He's kind of the holdover from that. Um, that's kind of what we think when, when people are talking about atmospherics or the cinematic look, there is zero natural light in the film. Um, it's all, you know, in any interiors are sets. So that's kind of how they, you know, there's no, there's no overhead lights. There's no, there's very few lamps, you know, in the sets. Um, I one, one little part I noticed when Deckard finds the scale in the bathtub, he's completely silhouetted. And there's just this nasty fluorescent light on the wall. Speaking of which, um, the silhouettes in this movie, the, the, the trust in the audience to see into the darkness and to uh, be able to see the action through uh, so many layers of dark is really, I mean, it's, it's astounding, really. Like, we, we don't shoot movies like this anymore. No, but they would they would do little things which you don't, you know, you wouldn't maybe notice on a first viewing, but they would add sort of um, like these neon lights on the edge of the umbrella, for example, or at the far corner of the yeah. room. And those so little thought, lights. I sort of thought that was Shane, a Star Wars homage. Shane, stop me if I'm wrong. I thought that the, I thought the exteriors, or at least in the city shots, they were only lit by the neon signs on the set and not by anything else and that if they needed more light they would just add more neon no you you can tell there's there's like a a key base layer of light they use some pretty heavy rigs because they're also using a lot of rain and water doesn't pick up on film unless it's lit um but they there is um they do mention the one shot of zora's death where you see her body and i think it's her body in a puddle and one of the big uh neon lights is reflected in the puddle and it took something like two hours to set up that shot to be able to get the reflection just right and to be able to get it i don't know it's it's all these elements working together because you have you um you know the wet ground or water so much water on the ground will become a reflective surface and so you have uh the water as a, acting as a reflector you have all the natural neon sources you have you know whatever big key light they used however much in the distance um it is really kind of all the elements of lighting of layering lighting that they use for this and that's really something you see with the old school cinematographers and uh you just don't really there's not that much craft today especially on film uh, which is so tricky yeah but it's, it's also not just about the lighting um it's also just about the world building like it definitely maintains the grittiness. It looks like a city that's in transition from sort of holding over stuff. It's it's sort of patched together from yeah. the old ways and new ways. Which uh, is how technology, like yeah, technology is coming, but they're still having to use old stuff, yeah. like old technology. So in that sense, it definitely feels lived in and real. Like it feels like very relatable. Let's put it that way. More so than than 2049's kind of slick, ultra slick city. Um, one of the the undercurrents of the movie is the multi multiculturalism of Los Angeles. So it's pretty much been, um, and you see that in Edward James Olmos's character Gaff, who's who talks in city speak, which is this, like some of it's like Korean, some Spanish, like some English, like it's all this mix, um, and almost kind of worked with the uh, Ridley Scott and 
whoever else to kind of craft this obscure language. Um, and you also see, you know, uh, the Japanese influences. You see, you know, heavy uh, Asian population among the extras. Um, it's really, it's really kind of interesting how multiculturalism has lived, you know, but at the detriment of like the planet, <laughs> so to speak. Well, and that's as good a segue as we're going to get to get switch tracks a little bit and start talking about uh, the new movie, Blade Runner 2049, directed by Denis Villeneuve. Uh, we will, of course, have occasion to keep talking about the original by means of comparison, necessarily. Uh, so let's hear a clip from that new movie and come right back. Every leap of civilization was built off the back of slaves. Replicants are the future, but I can only make so many. I had the luck, and he has the key. I think I found him. That's not possible. If this gets out, we've bought ourselves a war. You're a cop. I did your job once. Things were simpler then. What do you want? I want to ask you some questions. What happened? I covered my tracks. Scramble the records. We were being hunted. By who? You're back on Sword Cinema. That was a clip from Blade Runner 2049, the long, long, long awaited by some uh, sequel to the original. Um, my favorite headline about how it did at the box office was um, Blade Runner 2049 draws older males and no one else. Um, Ouch. <laughs> which, which was a, just a really good headline and B is just funny to think about when everyone was weighing, when the early reviews came in and everyone was like, Oh my God, everyone loves it. And that's because most of the established critics that were seeing it early were all old men. <laughs> Simon, that's not true because a lot of critics that went to go see the movie are actually well under the age of 30. Um, The the interesting thing is I think this A proves that reviews do not affect a box office score. If something gets good reviews or bad reviews, it could still make money and or not make money. Also, I find it interesting that, I don't know if you guys heard about this, but all the critics were complaining because Warner Brothers made them sign some kind of embargo, but it was really unusual to the point where they couldn't talk about anything. (laughs) So they're like, how are we supposed to Mm -hmm. write a review? Um, so I just thought that was pretty interesting, but I'm, I'm kind of glad the movie didn't make a lot of money at the box office because I, I mean, I know, I know one of you hates this movie, but I think, uh, that's only going to make people love the movie even more. And I think it's going to find its own cult following in the next 10 years. I mean, you weren't hoping for the Blade well, Runner cinematic universe. No, well, <laughs> they want to make it though. That's the problem. That's oh, no, to be totally Lord. honest with you, I, I kind of want it to be a flop because they, they, they're flirting with the idea of, exploring the off-planet, mm-hmm. right? Like, exactly, I yeah. I don't give a shit about the off-planet. So to rewind a moment, because I sort of, I realize I prompted this whole discussion, let's talk about the plot of Blade Runner 2049. What's it about? And as you can imagine, it takes place uh, roughly 30 years. No, actually, I believe exactly 30 years after the events of the original film. Uh, this time, the principal character is played by Ryan Gosling, 
whose name is simply K, which is an abbreviation of his of his blade running name, which I'm definitely not going to remember all of. Uh, and once again, a a cop tracking down replicants, but this time uh, circumstances are a little different. Essentially, uh, sort of tracking down the the last remaining uh, of a breed of re- of replicants who came later, who were meant to be uh, sedate, and. Uh, K himself is revealed early on to be a uh, a kind of replicant, albeit one who is uh, specifically designed to take orders and uh, do nothing more. Although, as we know in these movies, that's never how these things work out. And uh, yeah, Harrison Ford shows up at some point, but we'll talk about that later. And, you know, big conspiracy, lots of characters, um, a much greater time span and geographical span than the original film, lots of which we'll I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, Denis Villeneuve takes over. You may remember him from such works as Prisoners and most recently and relevantly Arrival, um, which, you know, we may also have reason to bring up as a point of comparison. Okay, so um, actually, yeah, I I do want to start with uh, with you, Shane, because you were talking about uh, and I'm thanks, by the way, for that uh, technical breakdown of how the original film was shot, obviously. It's been 37 years and a lot's changed about filmmaking. Uh, I mean, what do you think about how the new one looks and feels? And what do you think it tells us about what's happened with with sort of genre filmmaking these days? Well, for one, this is shot digitally. Uh, yes. Roger Deakins uses his preferred method, the Ari Alexa, um, which is probably the best digital camera on the market. Um, and... I think he does a smart thing by not trying to ape Jordan Cronenworth's work. Um, this is less about kind of the big you know, smoky light sources and more, um, you know, Deacon's very much like using what's called practicals, you know, your lamps, your fluorescent sources. Um, and so this one has kind of more of an emphasis on kind of seeing in the dark, like, you know, uh, lighting characters through, you know, uh, a single neon sign or like the big pink billboard. Um, Or then in in some ways, like the scenes inside uh, the Wallace uh, lab or pyramid. Is it a pyramid? Like the first one? I don't know. I think it's the same building. Yeah. Yeah. Wallace's lair. Um, he's very deliberately almost like mimicking sunlight, like harsh sunlight passing, which creates really deep shadows, which is a contrast from outside. There, there's no sun, you know, there's no uh, real sunlight in the film. You have, you know, the overcast uh, location, the junkyard, which is overcast, but he's making a really, he's making you think of light sources, you know, um, because the, the, the cityscape and the dystopia is so devoid of what we consider, you know, earth, you know, the way the sun comes up, it's bright and then it goes down. That's, that's all gone because of how we depleted the planet. So he's really kind of getting you to be nostalgic for certain light, for certain the ways light moves, you know, uh, everything's, you know, so he's really, he's really emphasizing the artificial to enhance whatever natural stuff is left in this world. 
Can, can I just ask you one more quick question uh, since we're on the topic of the cinematography? Because when Simon uh, phoned me the other day, I told him, like, you know, the movie looks beautiful, no doubt. But it was the thing that I walked away thinking less about when I walked out of the movie. Because, And I think it's because, I mean, what I was wondering, and this is why when I watched the original film three times this week and it blew me away each and every single time, like that original film was shot on film and they didn't mm-hmm. have the in a computer CGI enhancement, special effects, whatever that they have now. Right. Um, this film is shot in digital and I'm wondering how much of it was done in post. Like, is it just a lot of like touch up and color correct correction in post? Because that's why I guess nowadays when I go to the movies, I'm not as fascinated <laughs> or mesmerized or taken back or in awe of watching movies. Cause in my head, I'm like, well, they probably, you know, did most of this like about 50% of it in post. And I know Roger Deakins is like, you know, probably most likely the greatest cinematographer working today, mm-hmm. but still like how much of it is in post. Uh, I can't say that I do. I do know Deakins is very much an in-camera guy. So those, you know, light shifts and the Wallace Lair, those are almost, I'm almost hundred percent positive. Those are done in camera. Um, but he, he does very much value a quote-unquote clean look as opposed to, you know, the original Blade Runner, which is, it's gritty, it's dirty, it's an embracing film grain, you know. Um, 2049, it's, I don't think there's a, a grainy or noisy shot in the movie. You know, it's very controlled. And uh, I think Blade Runner is a little more experimental, a little more about, you know, lighting accidents and and. and just kind of whatever, whatever you can catch in camera. Um, I think that's a big difference. There's also a difference in how movies are made now, because I just don't think with that budget and the subject matter, a movie's really allowed to be, you know, that uh, as as gritty and, and experimental as the original Blade Runner was. Right. We're talking about a movie that's playing around with like 150 million dollars of a studio's money. Which is yeah. not nothing. So anyway, um, sorry that that was also re- this has been an unusual review because we we normally wait we normally wait to get into these technical <laughs> details. But I was just so interested to get your uh, to get your take on that, uh, Patrick. Yeah. You know, we may as well just dive right in with you because I can sense, um, and by sense I mean you wrote a review, and I just know uh, that you're you were not <laughs> altogether um, enthralled by this film. I wasn't altogether enthralled by it, nor was I, you know, nor did I hate it. Although, if they chopped a half an hour off of it, I would have been a lot happier, I can tell you that. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was just uh, it, it, one of the, the greatest sins of, of any movie. It was boring. Uh, I didn't think that they went for anything. I'm not sure that even though Hampton Fancher came back to, to write this sequel, I'm not sure he understood why Blade Runner has persisted. Um I thought that it relied too much on uh, a whodunit mystery plot that ultimately goes nowhere and was pretty easy to snuff out right from the beginning uh, and doesn't really have any impact anyway. Uh, I'm not sure why, why, what they thought they were saying with this movie. And maybe somebody will correct me here and can come up with something that this movie was reaching for, but I detected no... Um, no love for humanity in this whatsoever or who we are as people or where we are in this universe. What is our point? I didn't detect any of the sci-fi looking to the stars that, that you see in blade, the original blade runner. 
I just saw a very, very lovely film whose images are enough to get it through quite a bit of its running time, of its two-hour and 40-minute running time, but that that focuses so much on such a sparse plot with just sparse dialogue. Nobody really talks in this movie. Nobody really (laughs) does anything of any importance in this movie. Very little... favorite thing about it. (laughs) Very little (laughs) action is taken... And it's beautiful to look at, but it's ultimately, it's like, it's a beautiful nothingness, I believe is how A.O. Scott described it. And he's dead on. Um, I'm going to attempt, even though I wasn't like the biggest fan of this movie, I am going to attempt to locate what I think is its key theme and the way it sort of extrapolates it, which is that unlike the original Blade Runner, where you supposedly have a human character interacting with non-human characters, although as it turns out, we had a non-human character interacting with non-human characters, but whatever. We had a character presented to us as human and, and you know, played by an actor who played it as a human anyway. Um, in this movie, we are given a character who we are immediately told is not human. Um, there, are ex- there are very few human characters in this movie. Um, the majority are some kind of artificial life form. And what I thought was most interesting is that we get different varieties Uh, different flavors of artificial life forms interacting with each other and pondering what it is to be alive and what it is to be invested in life. And I think that's sort of most, even though I wasn't enthralled with the joy character and the way she was written, I thought the prospect, I mean the, the on paper, at least the, the relationship between K and joy, again, like both different kinds of artificial life and the way that joy begins to you know, is given a modicum of liberation via this, via this, uh, uh, I forget the, the transponder device or whatever it is he calls it. Um, and then, you know, sort of the, the way their relationship threatens to evolve. Unfortunately, it doesn't get quite enough, uh, screen time to do much with it. Um, and then what happens with the Mackenzie Davis character there as well. Um, I think that is juxtaposed really nicely with the general question about replicants versus humanity, Um, Where do you draw the line between life and not life? Um, And also the way that in the end, the Gosling character, Kay, um, is not sort of the chosen one, is not the hero. uh, Or maybe he is the hero, but he's not the chosen one. Um, He's not the the special one, um, which I thought was actually quite nice. Um, Given that he's not the special one, is he still important? Um, That was, I think the most interesting angle for the movie to take. Yeah. So I think um, like whether or not he's special and that, that whole thing, whether he's the chosen one at the end, that is more of an element of uh, that's a function of plotting again. And I, I really don't believe that the, that covers any pertinent thematic ground. It's retreading the, Oh, what it, what is, what is life? You know, what is a real life? Like do these replicants feel and do they deserve to be, you know, treated as living beings? It's completely retreading that from Blade Runner, but it's doing it in a very, very conventional way. We have seen this, this way done a hundred times before and in much better movies. I mean, you can look at her, uh, Spike Jones's her as a great example of a movie who had several scenes that were just like some of the ones in Blade Runner here and handled it way better, like way, uh, way more complex that actually made turn this issue into something 
reaching as opposed to this very, very boilerplate handling of this issue. Yes, this these are the themes of 2049. I agree. Like the movie has themes, but they're such bland. It, it, it handles these themes, themes so blandly because it's clearly more vested in its little topsy turvy plot. Because I still think at the end of the day, it thought that it needed to inject a mystery as good as the is Deckard a, a replicant mystery. And so it, it created this, manufactured this really, really boring, is he the chosen one, this this guy that's been born. Uh, because, oh, by the way, that's a, that, I think they ripped off a, uh, a plot from a, a very old cheesy movie that I, I, I knew I saw and I completely remembered called The Creation of the Humanoids, where it was all about artificial humans and they decided to, to make one that could become pregnant or that, that could give birth. Uh, anyway, it was very, very similar plot from this like 1960s B movie. Uh, <laughs> you, see, you see, I think, I think the... That narrative choice, that little, that little plot twist, is a complete rejection of like the tidiness of narratives nowadays. You know, the fact that we we as humans create stories and make connections to try to give ourselves meaning. And at first, when he he thinks that that's what's going on, that he's a you know Deckard's child, um, it it creates an existential crisis in him. And then he starts accepting it, and then it, it, it kind of creates sense for him as a as a being. And then that's completely found out to be not the case. And I, I, I enjoyed that that subversion of you know our, our pension to make everything connected. Of so and so was so and so's son or father, or you know everything's always so tidy. And I, I that seemed deliberate to me. You guys, you guys are forgetting one one important thing about this movie. Put aside if you like the script and or not. This movie has like one of the best performances from Harrison Ford. And yes, I, I kid yeah. you not. I kid you not. I went to the movie opening night, Thursday night, um, seven p.m. There was I think twelve people in the theater plus me and my family, so technically sixteen of us. Uh, within a, an hour, an hour and fifteen minutes, about ten people walked out of the movie theater, which left. Basically, it was just me, my family, and two people left in the movie. And it was like everyone walked out before they saw Harrison Ford on screen, who was so good in this movie. And, Patrick, I get what you're saying with your quibbles with the film. I've heard both sides of the argument. But um, I personally just, like, found myself entertained, if if not only because of the cinematography, the art direction, the just the production values in, in, in general. Um, even I even like the score. Um, oh God, yes, the score yeah. we, that deserves a big mention, and I'm big right really? with you on the visual. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I, I like the score. You, you know the thing about the original score? The original score is like mind blowing. It's so influential, as is the original movie. But even the original score, there are times, like for example, the love scene where that score becomes dated, like a few years later, a decade later. This it, score, and it isn't a bad thing, though. It's not, but this score won't be dated. But it's not a bad thing for you and I. When we watch that movie, we love it. But for some people, it is a turnoff. But the point is, um, there's a lot that I enjoy in this movie. And I'm not like I like some of my favorite movies are really long. You know, like I look at Bellatar films. Bellatar is one of my favorite filmmakers. <laughs> His movies are long, slow. We're talking about like four hours of like nothing happening, a horse walking for like 20 minutes. I love these movies. Uh, I'm not even joking. Like I think he's like one of the he best. He really filmmakers. isn't. Tar- what? Tarkovsky is one of my favorites. So no, I just said you, yeah. <clears throat> Tarkovsky's great. Uh, even the uh, Seal and Sonos like love exposure. Four hour long, four hour long movie. I love it. Oh, length doesn't bother me if it's good. I'll watch Gone with the Wind right now and love it. Oh, 
Uh, screw Gone with the Wind. <laughs> <laughs> this movie could be an hour and a half and you could still love it or, and or hate it, I think. But the point I'm trying to make here is that, yes, I would like my movie shorter. It didn't actually bother me that it was long, though. Um so I think that, like, for me, that's, like, a plus because they still found ways to keep me entertained. There's things that uh, – about the movie that I, I, I wasn't a big fan of. Like, I think uh, you could have eliminated Jared Leto's character. I don't think he was really needed. I did have some quibbles with with what kind of – what was his motivation? How how are they using him for the, the plot at the end? Because it seems like they kind of just drop him. The point I want to make, though, is – and I swear to God, I don't have much to say about this movie – Apart from the fact that I admire this movie, if if only because it comes from this big Hollywood studio. It's directed by Denis Villeneuve, who I love and adore. He's from Montreal, my city. Uh, Five one four props, but like <laughs> he makes this this like sequel to a beloved film. It's got a hundred fifty million dollar budget, and he doesn't feel the need to cram it with like these over the top action set pieces and CGI, and like it doesn't it doesn't end up being like Star Wars. And he's not afraid to take his time with the movie and control the pacing, and it's deliberately slow, and it's not going to appeal to everyone. Clearly, Patrick's not a fan, but I do admire the fact that they are trying something new because a lot of times, you know, critics. Film moviegoers say, well, they want something original. They want something different. And a lot of studios have given it to us this year. Look at Dunkirk. Look at mm-hmm. uh, Blade Runner 2049. Look at Aronofsky's Mother. Mother. And I admire, I, I at least, if anything, Patrick, uh, I'm glad this movie exists. Like, you know, I, I, I'm glad that these studios are at least taking chances. By the way, I, I want to say, I, I just say, I, I said I don't hate this movie. Like, there, there, it lasted, I was entertained by it for quite a while. And when I say that it could drop a half an hour, it's because ultimately, for me, it goes nowhere. And so really, there was, and I really, specifically, the last act, even though Harrison Ford is very good, it kind of lost a lot of its steam, even visually for me. So what had kept me, what had buoyed me through that that entire experience with the amazing uh, looks and sounds, the sensory experience of the movie, kind of drops off in the last half an hour. And I could have basically cut it out. But I, I just think it plays it incredibly safe. But I am glad they made it. I am glad they tried, sort of. They And I and I also only think they sort of tried, really, with this. They didn't. They still played it somewhat safe in my mind. Uh, I, I agree with that. Because Harrison Ford comes comes into play uh, roughly like the last 45 minutes of the movie, and he's the best part of this movie, it kept me in the movie. Yeah. Like, like, And I that's think that's why. Good. Yeah. Um, um, the, I, have a, I have a couple of quick points to make about Jared Leto and the things around that character. The first is it's really, really funny in retrospect to think about all those articles that came out about his like extreme method acting where he like learned how to be blind considering he's in about seven minutes of this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, the, I, am very glad he wasn't in it much because he was very irritating, but I kind of liked the fact that in the end, his character wasn't that important because in like in the last act, there's all this bigger stuff happening with this, you know, with this rebellion that's going to happen, which with like these characters out of the matrix sequels and like (laughs) this and everything with, with and Wallace who's like never really dealt with. And the reason it, and all, it all just kind of falls to the wayside because none of it is really that important to our characters. Like it's not important to K not really. It's not important to Harrison Ford. 
Um, and it's not important to, you know, the, the, the central mystery character. Um, ultimately, like, there's no real reason to deal with it. Uh, now, you can argue that maybe those elements shouldn't have been included because they inflate the length of the movie, and I would agree with you, but I was glad that the movie didn't, like, didn't feel the need to tie all that stuff up because it wasn't really important. Yeah, although this, the cynic in me says, well, this is stuff they're saving for a third one. But um, <laughs> that's their plan, but I don't think it's going to happen based on yeah. the box office. I, I do think the, Not the, gonna happen. the part where it got too plot-heavy for me, too conventional, was the introduction of the quote-unquote slave rebellion. The um, For at one point, she's like, you have to kill Deckard. I don't, that never seems consequential. That part seems started seeing overstuffed. Um, luckily, they do kind of just toss that aside. Um, you guys are dancing around what this movie is missing. Like, you're all bringing up valid points, even if you don't always agree. But the thing that this movie is missing is what the original film has, and that's a compelling villain, a villain that you actually care about, someone who's complex and struggling with his quote-unquote human human-like emotions and or not. I mean, there's no Rutger Hauer character-like type in this film, and that's what I think the movie's missing. Well, I would say well, I, I would say the main the main villain. Uh, what was her name? I, I forget. She's she's Love. not as she's not as compelling as Rugger Hauer in no way. But I mean, she's basically a swagbot. That it is interesting that her character adopts these human traits of she, like she understands her superiority. She wants to be the best. Like she she like she actively is competitive against humans and against other replicants and you see that in the fight with with k at the end that's kind of an interesting aspect it's not explored too much um but it's there i uh, i have to say i felt really bad for robin wright whose principal job in this movie is to sit behind desks and then be murdered she is very good though <laughs> you gotta admit she's very good for someone who's told to just sit behind a desk <laughs> and, and actually and be the assassin <laughs> The assassination scene I thought was uh, really effective. I love the way he cuts to the outside of the window and you, you get about like a, a, a few seconds of not being able to actually hear the sounds within the room before he cuts back. Like that was clever. Mm -hmm. um, I also want to give some props to uh, Dave Bautista, who yes. is who is yep. quite good in that sort of almost prologue sequence. Um, and another well, here, another guy who they kind of teased as having a bigger role than he really did. Here, here's the thing about that prologue um in the original blade runner script uh hampton fancher originally had this idea of this the the blade runner this detective in a going to a farmhouse he no one's no one's in the house yet he i think he makes himself some tea then the the replicant comes in and kind of knows what's the what's up and the blade runner murders him in cold blood and then we open um, that was the very like the very first scene, very first idea he had. So it's interesting they were able to finally incorporate most of that into this sequel. Right. It's like the Inglorious Bastards opening with a robot, almost. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, as a as a side note, and in, in regards to Batista, isn't it interesting how we have three wrestlers turned actors who are all doing different things? Dwayne Johnson's become the action star. John Cena is the comedian. Now Dave Bautista is the character actor. That is true. <laughs> well, we've had wrestlers act in the past. Look at Rowdy Roddy Piper in like a movie like They Live. And Hell yeah. 
There was a few wrestlers in the um, 80s, but... Hulk Hogan, Suburban Commando. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Much respect to my commander. Dude, e- they even made that movie with Zeus, the wrestler. It was Mr. T. There was, like, a bunch of wrestlers who ended up, like... Um, Andre the movie. Giant, Princess Andre Bride. Oh, yeah, yeah, dude. That's, that's true. This movie, nothing new. That's what this movie needs. It needs more wrestlers. It needed a wrestler. <laughs> um, but I, I, I'm not sure that... I mean, I think that with the movie have been improved with a charismatic villain probably but there's i mean there's so much going on in it already that i don't know that what the movie doesn't need is more stuff it needs less stuff it needs a lot less stuff it needed more time to you know for a movie that takes so long and is paced so slowly which is fine it actually needed more time to breathe i didn't feel like i ever got a sense of the city like i did in in the original blade runner i never felt like i got a sense of any of the characters even though we spend all our time with ryan gosling it very 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 rarely cuts away from him which was not something i mean the original blade runner it did cut away from harrison ford occasionally at least to roy batty you got a chance to to get away and to see things from another perspective and i feel like that's i think that's a major probably the major flaw with the film is is the design of the k character i don't think it's really ryan gosling's fault um I think you know he's a fine actor, but he's he's essentially been directed to do the drive thing again of <laughs> doing that disaffected wandering man uh, shtick that he's that directors are so fond of making him do, which he is fine. Well. He does it well, but it it takes up you know he's he's almost Jennifer Lawrencing it like he's in it almost every frame of this movie, and it's uh, it's a lot of dead eyed Ryan Gosling to look at. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, just going back quickly to Patrick's point about them not really doing a good job in world building, um, there there is one specific scene which is shot for shot almost exactly like the original scene from Blade Runner, where he's sitting at the noodle shop, mm-hmm. and yeah. like it's it, it's it's interesting how like that one scene which actually shows what the city looks like and gives us an idea and a feel for what this world feels like, at least when you're living in the city, is just lifted from the original film. I do like the way they take it to Vegas. And I think there's something haunting about the fight sequence when Harrison Ford and uh, Ryan Gosling are fighting it out, duking it out. And they have the holograms of the dead celebrities playing in the background and just how it relates to them as being like replicants and or not. There's something interesting about that, but I got to say that Denis Villeneuve is not exactly the best when it comes to um, staging action scenes. I did not like the final piece where it feels like they just basically rented some big, huge studio in Montreal, filled it with a tank of water, and somehow delivered this very strange sequence. Which I think, the, I think the thing about this film is, and I don't know if you guys feel this way. As, as much as I did enjoy it, I don't love this movie, and I, I, I will say that I don't think I ever want to watch it again. But really? it, it felt like there's no urgency. Uh, I would disagree, and I'd say in regards to the world building, the movie does imply a lot of stuff visually without telling us. So, I mean, it's been 30 years since the original Blade Runner. And if, if you pay attention, conditions on Earth have actually worsened. It's more smoggy. And there's actually less people now, which I don't know if it's implying there's been a population drop-off or that more people have uh, expanded out of the cities or more people are off-world. Because if, if you remember, if you remember, the original Blade Runner isn't the most, most people are off-world and pretty much what we see is what's left 
what's left behind. They say in the movie that most people went off world after the blackout. But but then but that's what I mean about the sense of urgency because he is a replicant, right? He's not human and we're not really connecting to him because he's so robotic in terms of his performance. Most of most humans are off planet. Uh we're basically surrounded by a bunch of like quote unquote robots. And it's like that's what I like, you know, like that's why I only really started to sort of care when we get Harrison Ford's character because I actually care about his character. Yeah, for some reason, the ne- the older Nexus models could actually act like people. <laughs> I know they well, obviously they, they did things to make sure well, that they wouldn't blend in as clearly and all that. Yeah, kind of well, stuff. Ryan Gosling's model is a more obedient one. Yes, they, they mentioned that. So, but the movie I, suffers from that. It needed that Deckard-type character that audiences could relate to as well. I don't know. There's nothing to get you into this world. And, it, and again, it, like, even though there may be things implied, I never got a sense for it because it's always going around everywhere. It's, yeah, you know, I mean, the opening takes place outside the city in the farms. Then we go go to the city. Then he flies back out somewhere else. Then he flies to Vegas. It's, it's going all over the place. They do try by incorporating uh, – and I, I don't remember the actress's name, but she plays the hologram. Anna um, de Armas. Right, but I think that's where Patrick Joy. brings up the point that we saw that exact same movie in Spike Jones's Her, and I think he did a better job in Her. Um, the character was, I think she did a great job, and it, I, I did sort of feel for her when she sort of gets terminated or retired, mm-hmm. I guess is the proper word. But at the same time, I just really didn't care because she was a hologram. Well, there, well that's an interesting, <laughs> exactly. but that's an interesting question because... I think one thing that this movie does that her wasn't allowed to do or wasn't able to do because, you know, all it only had one non-human character is you have these varying levels of artificial life interacting. And so even though I had some issues with the execution, um, I think this notion of watching these two non-human characters sort of negotiate each other's humanity levels, um, most sort of... It completely nonsensically and yet very evocatively uh, raised in that sequence where she's actually able to go outside and for some reason she gets wet, which I don't understand and I just will never understand. But still, I thought it was actually kind of haunting and the way that the movie's kind of testing your empathy level. Like you were just saying you didn't give a shit she was a hologram. Okay, fine. But I still kind of did give a shit even though she was a hologram. So that tells me. Yeah. That's great. I'm glad it worked for you. I'm just saying for me, it didn't. It didn't. It didn't work. But that's not a fault. You of the failed movie. the it's empathy. Just, it's just me, right? But <laughs> I think I think you're a replicant. That's what right. That's maybe. What we're saying. But it's interesting. Uh, you bring up uh, the rain because throughout the whole entire film, like the original film, it's always raining. This film, if it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's snowing. Right? Those aren't mm. ashes or pollution. It seems like it's snowing throughout the yeah. whole entire film. Yeah. And it's the all of the replicants. They seem to have this. Uh, reaction to the snow or the rain like they're in awe of nature and that's the only time where i actually kind of felt that they were feeling like human emotions but i don't know man the whole ryan gosling and and her the whole like 50 sort of like housewife house uh not housewife house what am i trying to say or that that 50 sort of like couple mm-hmm. um they're well, like the just, honeymooners you know exactly. it's, it's yeah. uh well, something deliberate. that i would be Something I would be remiss if I did not mention is the fact that uh, many, many, many uh, female critics that I know are not wild about <laughs> about the gender roles in this movie. I'm just okay. Well, let, let's let's be honest. If we take dystopias to the logical conclusion, which is the, the argument, the pa- I make. pretty much the patriarchy wins every time. Let's just let's just get yeah. that out there. Um, and yeah. so, what we have is like the superior man, genetically altered, engineered man. And the ideal 
quote unquote ideal woman, which is just a hologram does whatever you want. You know, um, that that's kind of the ultimate horror of, of dystopia, the page, the patriarchy winning. Well, and that's a thing. Cause it is a man that creates them, right? Yeah. But um, I, I I was wondering if the the scene toward the end where he sees the giant holographic billboard of joy, if that's not suggesting that he he kind of realizes that he became too wrapped up in what it what is human, what is real, and seeing that she was oh she was probably just programmed. I'm wondering if he if that's kind of his rejection of what she was, and then because right after he goes and to rescue Deckard. If that's not his his rejection of the artificial and him saying, if I really want to be a human, this is what I have to do. And that's I have to, just like the first Blade Runner, I have to save a life to be human. So you're saying that the you're saying that the message of this movie is bros before hoes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that well, sounds here's about my... right. Here's my last question. He should have that bumper sticker on his spinner. (laughs) Here's my last question for today because we do have to wrap this up and I have nothing left to say. But here's my question. Why do replicants want to become humans when humans are so incredibly flawed? Just saying. Because the flaws are what makes us man. Because they'll feel special. The flaws are what makes us man. But but if you're saying that that's a flaw in the replicants themselves, they were created by man. So it's man's flaws being replicated in, in, in their creation. So did Tyrell create the replicants because he purposely wanted them to sort of take over the planet? And I mean, because in this movie, and I, and okay, I swear, I know I said it, it was the last thing I have to say, but this is my last question. <laughs> so in the original film, everyone had this, uh, you know, there was this debate: is he a replicant? Is he not a replicant? Who the fuck gives a shit? But in this movie, they sort of answer like they're like he's a replicant because uh, Jared Leto's like crazy blind character says you were made specifically to mate with her to have the baby. That was no, no, purpose. they they don't answer it. Uh, Jared Leto's character asks him. He says. Were you designed? Yes, no. He's just kind of, he's either talking about design as in, were you designed as a replicant or are you part of, part of like, you know, God's design? Because he does talk a lot about God and angels and stuff earlier. It's kind of a, a double entendre, play on words. They, they really <laughs> don't answer it. I was kind of impressed by that. They don't directly, you're right. Because when he's saying like, we were hunted, it just means, that could just mean him and Rachel. It doesn't mean that, yeah. He was being hunted maybe because he helped her escape and he should have killed her. And she was being hunted because she was replicant. You're right. They never actually answer it literally. I, and then, and, uh, and I, I, I will say that was, that was my main trepidation going into this is I was worried that it might try to tie up all those bows. And it also, I was also worried it might be kind of like, you know, what we got with star Wars, the force awakens, you know, a big, nostalgia jerk off you know hey you remember the tyrell corporation hey you remember the pyramid building um i was thinking it had that, some of that yes and no i mean thankfully not i, I didn't much. get that sense yeah. i would say that denis villeneuve with this movie succeeds where george lucas steven spielberg and ridley scott have have failed where he said i'm gonna honor this material i'm gonna try to make it as close to the original as possible um you know, I came, you know, when I saw the Star Wars prequels or, or Indiana Jones and Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, you know, I, I felt like these these creators were giving, you know, they were giving into their worst impulses. And here you have a, a, a fan who 
said, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to try to do it as right as I can. Um, and I appreciate that. There is a scene in the casino when um, Kay finally meets uh, Blade Runner, Harrison Ford's character. And... <laughs> yes, his name. <laughs> Mr. Runner. I hate Mr. that Runner. he's called Kay, by the way, when you had Deckard, which is, is at least a nice little play on, you know, Descartes by it, by itself. And then Kay is just in, unimaginably named Kay. Well, then they, then they name him Joe. Which... Yeah, average Joe, I guess, sure. So when Mr. Blade Runner meets Mr. Blade Runner at the casino, <laughs> we get we get introduced to the dog, and he he asks, he's like, "Is the dog real?" And he's like, "I don't know. Why don't you ask him?" And I was like, "That's amazing! Like that feels yep. like that feels like it's like the director, <laughs> screenplay writer, and everyone on set just talking to the fans, like, who the hell cares?" Well, yeah, here, here's the thing: fuck in, up, in, fans. The, in the first in the novel, in the novel, all animals have died out, mm-hmm. and in the first mm-hmm. Blade Runner, it's implied that the only animals that are left are replicants. The owl in Tyrell's building is a replicant. And I that's, think they, why, they... that's why the unicorn, the horse, we're kind of like, it's pretty much we. the natural world is completely gone. Um, they make an allusion to real animals. One guy, because somebody asked him if it's a real snake, and he says, are you kidding me? Do I look that rich? Or something like that. Implying that there may be real snakes out there, mm-hmm. but they're so expensive, so unbelievably expensive that, you know, nobody can um, I have two final short points to make. One of which is the Sean Young cameo is insanely creepy. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, I did not like deeply that. unsettling. And uh, I, I, I understand that it was purposely unsettling, but I, I couldn't help but think about the fact that like dudes like Harrison Ford get to get old as fuck and still get to be in movies looking like themselves. But, you know, Why, she died. No, she's still alive. She's just, you know, yeah. old. Yeah. And well, no, uh, didn't, and I mean, they, she was they last hated her. They recreated her from. I assume no, but she still, but she still got a credit. I mean, I think no, she filmed oh, okay. stuff for the movie, but she appears as her younger self. And they use her voice. They have oh, okay. the credit because they use her voice in it. Well, so, the original character died, so they couldn't cast current Sean Young. Could they have made a replicant that was current Sean Young's? No, my, my that would be more far fetched. <laughs> she was in Boat Tomahawk. She didn't look that bad in that movie. <laughs> she could pull right. it off. My my point is, like, women have this tendency to get digitally de-aged one way or another, uh, which y- y- you don't see anyone doing that to Harrison Ford, although that would have been very creepy. Uh, hey, now, they do it to male actors, too. Have you Kurt not watched Russell. Star Wars films? Kurt Russell and Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, God. Michael <laughs> Douglas and Ant-Man. No. <laughs> well, Peter Cushing is a different thing. But um, anyway, the maybe the maybe the patriarchy is already won. There you go. Uh, the other point I wanted to make, I actually had a quote I wanted to read, and I, I wanted to do this during the the Blade Runner original flavor review. Uh, it's from an article from Vulture about um, about Philip K. Dick and Blade Runner. So apparently Ridley Scott said in an, in an interview that he found the novel too difficult to read. Uh, and Philip K. Dick was alive right up until shortly before the movie came out, so he did get to read the screenplay. He didn't never got to see the movie, and his response. Got to see some to, footage. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. His, I just love his description of the screenplay because it's so pithy, and he really earns his name. Uh, Dick's <laughs> approval of the screenplay had more than a touch of irony. It was terrific, he wrote. It bore no relation to my book. Oddly, in some ways, it was better. What my story will become is one titanic, lurid collision of androids being blown up, androids killing humans, general confusion and murder, all very exciting to watch. Makes my book seem dull by comparison. 
He added, as a writer, though, I'd like to see some of my ideas, not just special effects of my ideas used. <laughs> I just love that. He's such an asshole. <laughs> so so catty. Um, he did see footage of the original, and he, he praised Ridley Scott for basically pull, reaching into his brain and pulling out what, how he saw the world. That's cool. Anyway, I just love that quote. Um, and share it. I will say, I, I think I think I like this movie the most out of everyone here. I was I was I need I need to see it again, so I'm not I'm not set on my opinion. But I was kind of astounded while watching it that something this contem- contemplative and and this slow paced was allowed in the multiplex. You know, we just you know we're, movies aren't allowed to have silence. There was silence in this movie. Um, the sound design was old school. Movies are so freaking loud nowadays. Um, on you know, at least on just how it was made, like uh, I'm so thrilled that it exists. Yeah, well, I would say I would say the original is a more romantic movie, and you see that in the score. You see that in how everything's kind of set up. This is you, you this see is that in the tender more... love scene. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that sacks the place. Um, I think this is this is embracing a little more the the bleakness of what the world uh, implies. Um, so I, I think I think it does do something different enough because it's asking you to empathize with a character that's not real. And in a way, it reminds me a little Spielberg's AI, which really asks you to invest in this this non-human character that wants to be human and that. And on its face doesn't have a purpose, and so it, it it has to find its purpose throughout the narrative. That's kind of an interesting story. Patrick, wrap it up because we gotta go, man. Uh, I see this. I, I didn't hate it. It gets by on some of its just sort of sensory, the sensory elements of it. But I see this movie as a shell of uh, what the original Blade Runner was. It was an attempt, uh, sort of a misguided attempt at, at at trying to replicate what that movie was. And in the end, this is. <laughs> This is a replicant. That's what it is. It it looks great. It's stronger. It's faster. It's louder. It's everything. But it's not really human. It's devoid of soul. All right. And uh, you know what? For all my, I have some complaints about this movie, which have already been covered. But I will say, you know what? I like this a lot more than Arrival, which I actually kind of hated. Uh, oh, sorry. You, all fan. words with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll have words. Uh, and right. man, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think Denis Villeneuve has made a bad movie yet. No. So no, he hasn't. That's not true. He made Arrival. I haven't seen his earlier. Arrival, Arrival is fantastic. Arrival is not Arrival a bad movie. Great. And by the way, if anyone hasn't seen Maelstrom, I think it's by far his best film. Maelstrom so rules. I love it that movie. I, I haven't seen. I haven't seen Maelstrom. I haven't seen Polytechnique. I think those are those are the only ones I need to see. I haven't seen Polytechnique, even though I'm in it. Oh, for anyway. real. Yeah, that was some extra work. It was hard times. Anyway, uh, so yeah, thanks y'all for listening. Uh, do visit SortedCinema.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at SortedCinema. And uh, I think that's about it. Thank you, Shane, for joining us. And Patrick and Ricky will be back in roughly a week's time. Why are you staring at us, Sebastian? Because... You're so different. You're so perfect. Yes. What generation are you?
Nexus 6. Ah, I knew it. Because I do genetic design work for the Terrell Corporation. There's some of me in you. <laughs> Show me something. Like what? Like anything. We're no computers, Sebastian. We're physical. I think, Sebastian. Therefore, I am. Very good, Chris. Now show me why. 